Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey there, folks. Today's episode is brought to you by Marcy Dermansky Editorial Services. Are you a writer? Are you working on a novel? Are you working on a collection of short fiction? Are you working on a gut-wrenching memoir that's going to upset your family members and alienate you from your friends? Do you need some editorial help? Are you sorely lacking in editorial oversight? Go to MarcyDermansky.com and learn how you can work with Marcy. She will be your editor. She will be your trusted first reader. She will read your manuscript, annotate the manuscript, talk to you about the manuscript as if she were the book's doctor. Do you understand? She'll help you. She'll help you make your book better. MarcyDermansky.com. Marcy Dermansky. She's an editor. She'll edit you. Let her edit you. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person. Right. Just okay. one time. Okay, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California. I have Melissa Phoebos on the program today. I'm very excited about that. Melissa makes her triumphant return after nearly six years. Many of you may recall that she was my guest all the way back in episode two. The second episode of this program, she was here. And uh, back then, we were talking about her memoir entitled Whip Smart, which details the time she spent working as a dominatrix in New York City, among other things. And now she is celebrating the publication of a brand new memoir or a collection of memoirs. It is called Abandon Me, available now from Bloomsbury. Melissa Phoebos and I will be in conversation in just a moment. Before we get there, I do want to read a letter from a listener. I've been getting a lot of mail. I appreciate that. This one comes from a listener named Thomas. He says, Hi, Brad. I enjoyed your conversation with Ron Curry in the last episode. I was especially fascinated by the discussion of using caffeine and alcohol as a writer. Ron mentioned that he used to drink alcohol and write and seemed to suggest that it did not have a noticeable negative impact on his work. I think what he said specifically was that 90% of what he wrote while drinking was shit. But 90% of what he writes is shit anyway. While I am typically caffeinated from the moment I wake up until I go to sleep, I've always made it a point to never consume alcohol when I'm writing until lately. 
Right now, my routine is this. I get home from my night shift job at 5 a.m., drink a beer, and then write for an hour or so. I'm obviously not drunk, but I find that having a drink does help loosen my inhibitions a bit. As a writer who has long struggled with getting past the blank page, this can be very useful. I'm able to write without judging myself in the moment. So having a drink might not make me a better writer, but in an odd way, I find that it makes me a more productive one. Do you think this routine is a bad idea that I'm possibly developing a crutch or maybe this is just some bullshit, a bullshit justification. Anyway, thanks for the top notch show. Stay classy. Thomas. Well, thank you, Thomas. I appreciate the letter. And, uh, I don't know what to tell you. I, I think a lot of it depends on your neurochemistry. It depends on your family history. It depends on whether or not you have an addictive personality. Are you somebody who uh, is compulsive? It sounds like you can stop at one. Do you have a history of being blackout drunk, waking up in strange places, soiled and incoherent, that kind of thing. I mean, it makes some sense to me. Have a beer, loosen up a little bit, and then you get down to work. That's fine. But I think broadly speaking, my feeling on using chemicals in the service of making art is that it tends to be a matter of diminishing returns. I think about this with respect to pot a lot. It's very tempting to think that one could write a great novel uh, you know, on pot, as my mother would say. Are you on pot? And, uh, I'm sure there are some, maybe there are some writers out there. This is how they work. Have I talked to any writers who do this? I'm trying to recall if anybody has uh, admitted to me that they work while stoned. I don't think that smoking pot lends itself very well to writing, you know, literary fiction or literary nonfiction, maybe poetry, maybe screenwriting. I don't know. It just seems like diminishing returns. I couldn't do it. I like to be mildly caffeinated. Though maybe I'm missing out on something. Maybe I'll start having a glass of wine in the morning. Is it a crutch? Maybe, but it's a little crutch. Maybe it's too much of a crutch. I wrestle with this myself. Is it a Dumbo's feather? Dumbo didn't need the feather. Thomas, you can fly without the feather. You can fly, Thomas. <coughs> if you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Uh, thanks, Thomas, once more for sending word. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. 
It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest again, ladies and gentlemen, is Melissa Phoebos. I am so pleased uh, to have the chance to share with you this interview. I had a great time talking with her. It was wonderful to see her. We have crossed paths over the years here and there, and I'm just very happy for her as she uh, celebrates the publication of this new book. It's called Abandon Me, and this is... Melissa Phoebos. Wait, was that the day that we drove around in your Prius, your black Prius? That might be it, yeah. I, I remember I, dro- I dropped you off in like Silver Lake. That's like the last time I saw you was dropping you yeah, off Yeah, I was there. meeting with some producers about who didn't make a movie about out of my first book. Yeah. Bastards. They never do. They never do. They never make it. You have to, so I feel like we're at the point now where like, if you want anything done, you just have to do it yourself. It's true. I mean, I feel like I knew that when I was a child. Yeah. Like, why do I have to keep realizing that? But I feel like Whip Smart would, is great material for a movie. I mean, obviously. <laughs> but they just they just couldn't get the funding. That's or the... what they say. I mean, I don't I don't know. People in L.A. are so full of horseshit that whoever knows what they really think. Do you think that? I mean, is it okay? This is a question I often have because I've lived here for a long time. Is it the nature of entertainment? Yes. Is it different? Are people full of horseshit everywhere? Or it's like, what, what is it that makes people so full of shit in the entertainment industry? I mean, there is horseshit everywhere to be sure, but the particular, like just cannons of sunshine being blown up everyone's skirt is particular to LA. I found. Yeah. Like I've I've noticed, I always joke about this. Uh, I probably joked about it on this show before, but like when you get email correspondence that is entertainment industry related, I've noticed that there is, uh, heavy use of the word love in all caps. Like, I love this. You know what I'm saying? It's like, amazing. it's amazing. Like, it's always like, it's not only like, I love it, but I love it in all caps. And then they really don't love it. Yeah. In New York, I think there, I mean, there may be an equal amount of horseshit, but it manifests in very different areas. I mean, people are more full of horseshit about themselves, you know, and here people are like blowing their horseshit at other people. It's like a false reflection, you know? And, yeah. and I, you know, in my few sort of entanglements with like the entertainment industry here, I was shocked every single time at the ability of people native to the industry and to this place who still believe it. Even I was like, this isn't going to happen. Like it's it's very insular. And, uh, 
I feel like there's like a, it's like a tribal thing. There's an inside language. People, people just love to sort of talk about stuff. They love to use yeah. the language. They love to make snarky comments. Yeah. Like yeah. a lot of inside jokes, you know? Yeah. And it makes me think it's like this, um, everybody's just decided to co-sign the same delusion and they're just like skipping through it until they bump up against the rude reality of it. But they do it over and over and over again. It's sort of like, you know, I actually wrote about this in the book, the, uh, you know, when Frank L. Baum wrote, uh, the, uh, the Oz, I forget its actual title, but you know, what didn't get translated into the movie was that all of the people of the city of Oz wear these green goggles that make it look like emeralds, but it's not, it's just like a shitty town <laughs> and they wear these green goggles and it makes everything look beautiful. And I feel like LA and particularly the entertainment industry is kind of like that. Everybody's just got their green goggles on and they're like, isn't it beautiful? And I come from New York and I'm like, it smells like piss and there's starving cats everywhere. And they're like, what are you talking about? You're going to be a star, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like LA. I, I was thinking about, uh, that today thinking about you coming over cause it was cloudy when I woke up and I was like, Oh no, like Melissa's in town and she's got to see LA when it's cloudy. And I always feel like the real ugliness of LA comes out when it's yeah. cloudy. Like it's meant to be viewed in sunshine. Yes. And when it's not, you're like, Oh, this yeah. is a disaster. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you need to activate all the reflective surfaces for LA to do its, to do its work. Although I will say I had a friend come into town to New York recently and it was like, just post a snowstorm, but a few days. And I was like, wow, it's freezing cold. It's raining. There's filthy snow and it smells like feces. But I, but I feel like the immediate aftermath of a snowstorm or during like a blizzard in New York mm -hmm. is like maybe one of the best times to be it there. Is. Everything's it is. covered in that like white blanket. It's, it's quiet. It's never that quiet any other time, I right. think. but it has to be right. Like seven minutes afterwards it's already just like filthy <laughs> people are peeing in the snow yeah, like seven it's just minutes like later there's like a lasagna of layers of ice and dog shit and trash <sighs> but for those first six minutes it's beautiful so you're out here mm -hmm. you've, you've been on tour for how long i've been on tour for like two and a half weeks and you're liking it i do i like it i mean i i mean in a sort of more universal way. I think sitting alone for seven years with my own mind, it leaves me starving for this side of it. But also I'm an extrovert. I love traveling. I love airplanes. I love hotels. I love like frenetic social activity. I love talking about myself. I love being clapped for. So all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't exhaust you. Did, did you, do, do you derive energy from it? I derive energy, which is the definition of an extrovert, right? Yeah. Like I, I derive energy from interaction with other people. And, but you know, I have to say I took six months of celibacy this year or last year, I guess now. And something happened. It was like, I, I encountered my introverted parts and Wait, what do you mean? Six months of celibacy, meaning like I did not have sex or flirt or go on dates oh. for six months. Okay. But then this was enforced or this is just how your life turned out. No, this was a decision oh. that I had to make. Why? Because I had been in relationships since I was 15, basically with no interruption. And I had this incredibly harrowing relationship that I wrote about. Right. Um, and after that I was like, I need a break. And then I proceeded to get into four miniature relationships and I was like, okay, I'm going to have to be more intentional about it because my patterns are so engraved. Is it like sex addiction or is it just like, you're just so used no. to it? I, I think it's not definitely not sex addiction. There might be, you know, I'm an addict for sure. I have the biological gift of addiction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I'm Thanks, really Dad. good at convincing myself <laughs> that I'm dependent on things that are actually harming me. But, um, but no, I think that I just, 
like love. I like people. I like being partnered. I'm pretty good at relationships and you wouldn't know that from this book, but in general, um, or, but like, and you're also, you also must be good at attracting like uh, people, like people do relationships come to you. <laughs> they do actually. They do. Yeah. I think that, um, cause there are a lot of people I, I think would love to be constantly I have, in a relationship. You know, this is one of those things and I'm even having a moment of inhibition about talking about it while it's being recorded because like, there's not a lot of pity in the city for people who like fall in love too much and have right. too many relationships <laughs> right. and are always having to break up with people. Yeah. It's a tough life. <laughs> All this love. Coming um, at me. like I had a friend once say like, yeah, I really sympathize for what you're going through, but also like go fuck yourself. Yeah. Well, cause <laughs> there know? are people, there are people who, and I, I was kind of this way. Like I just was, I don't know. I guess I'm kind of more introverted. I wasn't out and about. When I did go out, it wasn't like women, I mean, or if women were like interested in me, like I would miss the signals. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, I think I'm basically the opposite because what happened was I took the six months. It was actually three months of celibacy and it was so glorious that I extended it for another three months. Why was it so glorious? What was it? Like you just, cause it was new. I don't know. I no. I had had, you know, that part of like being a love oriented person and an interaction oriented person, it means that I... I just get involved. Like I am interested and curious and conscious of the needs of other people and just automatically sort of accommodate those and react to those. And I had never as an adult woman been alone with my own instincts and preferences. And so there was all this new information and I had thought that it would be difficult, right? Because you would sort of assume that a person who had never been alone had some, you know, subterranean or maybe not subterranean could, fear of being alone. Could you masturbate? Like, well, would you yes, allow, or like, yes. it wasn't like some like austere yeah, thing. Yeah. But I didn't like feverishly masturbate. It was totally normal masturbation. It was okay. like everything. It was so much easier than I thought. And I had actually interviewed this cause I was going to write about it and I probably will eventually. Um, I interviewed this like expert, this like relationship psychologist. And she said, she thought it was going to be so hard. It was going to be incredibly hard that I might become deeply depressed and that I might even become suicidal and that I needed to lash myself to the mast. Like, uh, what's his name with the sirens? I, I don't know. Like, I don't um, know mythology. Odysseus. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I had to lash myself to the mast cause it was going to be that hard. And she couldn't have been more wrong because it was just like, I loved being alone so much. And it was so, Nice because it was like, oh, it wasn't like this yawning vacuum of existential grief waiting. It was just that I had been sort of habitual about entering into relationships and like building my life around another person. And when I didn't do that, I had this sudden access to who I was and myself and my own um, wants and needs and pleasures in a way that I had never had before. Okay. So two questions. First of all, did you curtail your social life in any way? Like, did you change the way you operated socially? No, but I mean, in a sense, because I've always been sort of a rabid socializing person. I just like have a lot of friends. I live in New York. I do a lot of events. I'm, you know, I just like, I'm an extrovert. Yeah. Um, but I also pour so much energy into relationships that it's this incredible expenditure of energy, right? I'm like pouring it into the relationship, pouring it into the social life, pouring it. I also write a lot. And so it was like literally no time really spent alone with myself that wasn't writing or like jogging, you know? Yeah. And so I didn't spend less time with my friends, but you subtract the relationship piece of the pie and suddenly I had time and that time ended up 
devoted to time spent by myself and with myself and you're like um, i'm actually really amazing like wandering <laughs> i was like i don't like you <laughs> i was like you're wandering around person. my house and you know like i discovered that i have these introverted aspects where like you have to if you're a writer i you're didn't spend that much time alone looking at a screen yeah there would just be times where i like didn't even want to text anyone didn't want to talk on the phone i just wanted to like be home and putter around and like eat pickles in the middle of the night in my underwear <laughs> and like like read one page of six different books and then right. whack off and go to bed you know and like i've never done that ever <laughs> what do you yeah i don't know what, what have you been waiting for my god like, i mean you know, but and did know. you, did you think though that, uh, or do you think in retrospect that part of the reason why it was so enjoyable and you were able to do it, um, with, you know, relative effortlessness is because you knew that it was finite. You're like, I'm going to, you know, if, if, if this was something that you felt like you might never escape, I think right. that's where the depression sets in. It's yeah. like people who are sort of like eternally single just cannot find somebody of, of which there are many people, many and, you know, that's where it starts to get depressing, where it's like, yeah. you know, it's been a decade since I've been in a relationship or it's been even a year, two years. Like, yeah, that's tough. I know. I know. And that's, I think that's why I haven't, I have to find a way to write about it. That's not just hateful. Why do you that think doesn't you, make people <laughs> hate but, me? Because I do think like I have a, I have a pretty acute awareness of that. And yet also like the other side of it, my problem is it's also real, you know, like not ever, I think what it really boils down to, and this is so tedious, if you've ever been in therapy or read a self-help book is just not having a respect for my own boundaries or my own solitude. And just like, you know, I, I took a long car trip with a good friend of mine recently and she was like, well, tell me like the story of how you ended up celibate. Cause I was, it was, this was like at the end of the celibacy. And I told her sort of the story of my last few years. And she was like, so do you just agree to people who want to be in a committed relationship with you. And I was like, no. And then I was like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> like if they ask enough times, like I just can't say no more than once. It takes so much for me to be like, no. And if I'm attracted to them, I'm just like, okay. So, okay. So here's it. Like you have your celibate period. It was six months. Yeah. You have a, you have a, a day of, of, uh, what is it? The finish line. You're done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So whatever day this is. It's like a Tuesday. It was November sixteenth. Okay, so November. <laughs> <laughs> so November sixteenth, celibacy ends. November seventeenth, are you in a relationship? <laughs> no, um, it was. <laughs> you actually, went out the next day and fell. It in was love. really interesting because I got on the apps and and like I really had had to clean house to do the celibacy because I realized I had all these little like things, you know, yeah. like sort of interests, like simmering pots and like very back burners. And, and I was just like, no, 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 no. I sort of like eradicated them all. Um, cause I wanted to really do this thing. And, and so it wasn't like there was no one around and that was fine. And I had so, I had so enjoyed my own company and so enjoyed my solitude and so enjoyed being fully present for my friendships and my family and my work, like in a way that I had literally never been before. It's wise. I think I so, was in no hurry. Yeah. But I, I mean, in... people who have people who literally jump from relationship to relationship to relationship and I never have a period of being single. Um, I think you're, I think you're wise to press pause and like yeah. have some time to do that. Yeah. I mean, I wish I could take credit for, I sort of feel like God, just 86 to me or my own psyche or my Buddha mind or whatever. It was just like, you're done. You're cut off. Go home. Really? Somebody call someone to come get you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Like what precipitated the decision? Like, did you have like a, a 
come to Jesus with yourself? Like- no, it was like the same way that I stopped doing everything that I do ceaselessly, which is that I just do it until I physically cannot anymore. And I had just been like relationship, 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 relationship. And then after this like extremely harrowing, excoriating, tormented relationship, the ones after it, it was like a friend of mine was like, you're doing the same thing you always do, but the lifespan is just getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And now it's like three months instead of three years. And then I would just like meet someone and they would be like, Hey, and I would be like, no. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I was just, they don't like, even have to say, Hey, they just look at you. Yeah. And I was like, no, <laughs> you know? And the funny thing is when I came out of it, the same thing happened where I was like, so into being alone and it was actually repulsive for me to imagine waking up with someone else in my bed or in my, where I was just like, when I can't even, I know that I will want that. And, you know, as an epilogue, I am now in love again. And I totally want to, like, drink their spit and be attached <laughs> to them. But um, but it was, like, repulsive. Like, I could not even imagine wanting someone else, specifically, like, in my apartment in the morning. Like, that space felt so good to inhabit alone that I was like, no. And I went on these dates, but I was still me. So I think I was attracting the same people, same kind of person. So it would be, like, these people, I would go on dates, and they would be like, let's be fucking obsessed with each other. And I'd be like, we don't, you're crazy. Like, you're what are you talking women? about? Women? Mostly women. Yeah. Okay. Cause like, I feel, I mean like this is sort of the cliche, but like, what's the, what's the joke? Like the, what do you call It's like the U-Haul, U-Haul. Uh, to lesbian second date. Second date. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but I like, that makes some sense to me because women, um, I yeah. don't know the intimacy thing and yeah, the way that like women testosterone attach. Testosterone is just like a time release capsule for attachment. You know what I mean? It's like, that's how I sort of think of it. Like women are all about attachment. And so like you get too, you know, positively charged, you know, like I don't know enough about physics to really follow this (laughs) analogy, but, but there's just like nothing. You just go, you just go, you move in, you're in, but there have to be so many instances where all of a sudden you look up like a month later and you're like, wait a minute, we live together. Yeah. We don't even like each other. (laughs) It's happened to me so many times. (laughs) I mean, it got to a point, this was part of the celibacy too, where my mother, with whom I'm very close and knows me very well said with much affection, Melissa, um, I'd like to make a request. And I was like, yeah. And she said, um, I'd like you to stop bringing people home who I'm never going to see again. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, Ooh. cause you don't want to get attached. And you're like, she how serious like, is I this? I put all this energy into getting like getting to know them. It takes energy away from spending time with you or your brother. Right. And then they disappear forever. So like maybe you should impose a minimum time limit before you bring them home, like six months Yeah. or so. like it takes time to get to know somebody, right. you know? And in some ways, like, you know, I was raised by a therapist. I read psychology for fun. I have this like really big emotional vocabulary and a lot of, intellectual knowledge about the way we work and yet this aspect of me i now recognize has been pretty juvenile like like i until pretty recently i don't think really differentiated between infatuation and like real love as as i now define it now that i've called upon myself to actually define it no it's a good thing to define it's like the word success like these words get bandied about a lot yep but we don't really ever stop and think about what they mean to us so Let's explore that a little bit. Like, what does love mean? Because this gets to the heart of your book. You know, yeah. it's all about relationships yeah. and it's all about intimacy. Yeah. Um, like, where, where are you with respect to defining that for yourself? I mean, you know, I think up until the relationship I write about in this book, um, 
you know, it's a broad spectrum and I sort of called it all love. But I think once I had this sort of feverish, like I would look any corner of your body and want to like be with you forever and ever and ever, like that delusion, like that was love. Right. But that's not, that's a projection. That's lust. Yeah. That's lust. That's infatuation. That's fantasy. That's like an invention of both self and lover. You know, that doesn't have a lot to do with who either of you are or the kind of generosity that I think is actually the hallmark of love and like what I want. And I think in many ways, especially during that period of celibacy, because I was fully engaged in my other relationships and that is with my friends, with my family and those, I have extremely deep, complex, like truly intimate relationships with many people. And yet I didn't hold my romantic relationships to the same standard necessarily. I just called it all love you know? Um, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a quote from the classic, the road less traveled by M Scott Peck, where he says, love is as love does. Um, and basically, and I'm going to paraphrase and butcher it, but real love is generosity is like a wish for the development and happiness and fulfillment of the other person, even at the cost of your own desires, you know? And so I think, Hopefully we can find someone where what we want and what we want for them matches up at least for some amount of time, but lust and infatuation and certainly the relationship that I wrote about in this book do not fall under that category. What, what category does it fall under? Um, you know, the deep underpinning desire for emotional redemption that we all have that we seek in various ways. Um, but sort of like, you know, I don't think it's not, I don't think it's purposeless, you know, but I think when we have that kind of desperate craving, um, self-centered, like heat seeking missile kind of love, I'm making air quotes here. Um, it's not about the other person. It's not about generosity. It's about trying to get something that we didn't get or that was taken from us in early childhood. It's about like renegotiating the earliest traumas of our lives, basically. Well, and you do, I mean, you do a lot of, I mean, you've, you've done this in both of your books. Like when, by the way, I should mention you were one of the very first guests on this program. I was the second episode ever. And you know, I was just telling, uh, my friend before I came here, I said, you know, I'm a little bit nervous because Brad is such a good interviewer that the first time he interviewed me, I was so comfortable. We were like on the phone and I was like cooking. (laughs) I just sort of forgot that it was being recorded. And I thought I was just like talking to my friend Brad. And I said some things that afterwards I was grateful that they were behind the paywall of the early episodes. The paywall's gone now. I know. And then when you were like, the paywall's gone. And I was like, I knew there would be some percentage of people who were like, oh shit, he removed it. I kind of like being hidden behind that paywall. I know. Like I told a really gross story and uh yeah i'm not gonna repeat them here everybody the- listening you can now hear that for free please go I mean, tune in i think it's a hilarious story but it's not like if i had been fully aware that we were having an interview i probably would have curtailed it's hard yeah it's hard you know because I, I i think i have this i mean obviously uh i do this show and i've talked more than anybody on this program uh but i have that thing where I like to just say what's on my mind and tell mm-hmm. stories and shoot the shit. And then there is some difference between doing that in private and doing that in public. Yeah. I mean, but the places where they merge are 
that's sort of the thing about your podcast that I love. Well, and then, <laughs> and I would say the same, that, I mean, that's the line you're trying to walk in your, in your writing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. because, and let's get to this because, um, you've been talking recently, uh, I've been reading stuff online where, you know, you go on, um, very eloquently about writing from personal experience. Uh, mm-hmm. I just did a novel where I really dove into myself mm-hmm. and, and it's painful. And I guess, you know, you're dealing with stuff that's like very, very painful, I'm sure. And, uh, anytime, I mean, what else do you write about? You're not going to write about stuff that's not painful. That's you, you kind of yeah, go where nobody the, wants to read that. Yeah. So, but it's like as an exercise, as a creative exercise, um, how do you defend it? You know what I'm saying? How do you justify it to yourself? Is this selfish behavior? You know, that's the criticism that gets levied against it. This navel gazing is often used. I just think that's like complete bullshit. And that to defend it is to endorse the argument in the first place. And I call bullshit on the argument in the first place because people have always been writing about their own experience. And we are not looking for some kind of abstract intellectual like literary exoticism. Like we pretend that that's the highest, most sophisticated form of art, but nobody's actually interested in that. You know, what we want, what I want to see in literature is the writer reckoning on the page with things that I recognize and putting words to things that I already know, or that I'm afraid to put words to, you know, and I find the most direct route to those things is through my own experience because all of the things that are most painful and terrifying for me are the most universal aspects of being human. It's about grief. It's about disappointment. It's about love. It's about the failure of the body. Um, it's about being humbled and humiliated. It's about death. You know, like those are all the things that we really want to read about. And do I want a writer to say something smart about it? Sure. Like it, it helps just like, you know, you want a therapist to be a little smarter than you. You want the writer to always be a little smarter than you, but you're not looking for something that's completely out of the bounds of what you understand. You know, we're all self-obsessed. Well, yeah, this brings up an interesting point when you talk about wanting the writer to be a little bit smarter than you. Uh, I think that's true. And I think that as a writer, that's the work you're doing the grinding work of research and Mm -hmm. you're refining the language to make Mm -hmm. sure that you're saying complex things in Mm -hmm. a, in a clear way, mm-hmm. but yeah. do you ever, like, I can sometimes feel like a fraud, um, in the sense of like, do I really, or, or I can at least find myself questioning, like, do I really have mastery of this? <laughs> Am I really authorized or mm-hmm. not authorized, but you know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, yeah. where, where do I get the authority to talk about yeah. like really profound questions of, yeah. uh, life and death or, you know, I think, I think we all have that. And I think part of the way that I inhabit the authority to do that or the entitlement to do that is by taking those emotional risks, right? Because what qualifies me to write about it or to talk to my faceless readership about it has to be that I'm willing to go one step further than people usually are, you know? And so I think by taking the emotional risk and both sort of in my life, but particularly on the page, like I'm going to go there and name that thing. That's terrifying for me. You know, if I take one step beyond what I think is comfortable for most people, then I have the license to look back at them and say, Hey, this is worth it. Or this is possible. Yeah. You know, and or, like, look, I'm out here on the wire. Yeah. You know, it's easy, here we to, are. easy to criticize, but you're down there. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm up here. It's on the cold wire. up here. Yeah, right. And there's no net. But I'm not dead yet. Right. Well, and I think, but I think most people appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's I, always going to be some people who get in a twist about stuff, and I'm sure. I mean, it sounds like I mean you were raised by a therapist. I'm assuming you're referring to your mom, if yeah. I, you know, if yeah. I recall correctly. And so, uh, I would imagine she's pretty accepting in terms she of what is. you put on the page. She's pretty accepting, at least. She is willing to show up for the experience of having me represent aspects of her life through my own subjective lens, right. which sounds like sure, but actually that's incredibly hard. And I don't think most people can do it gracefully. Um, well, but- I, I feel like too, like writers, a lot of the time, sometimes people are like writing, not necessarily as an act of revenge, but like they, they are estranged from family or mm-hmm. they just like, they're just like, fuck it. I'm going to say my thing. Mm-hmm. I know it's going to make some people yeah. upset, but like, I can't live my life tiptoeing around that. Yeah. But I think more often is the case that writers who work up on the wire to continue mm-hmm. that, uh, have incredibly supportive family, at least one parent or someone who's really there that they right. know, they know that love is unbreakable yeah. and that they can't they can't break it by way of their creative output. You know, that's really interesting. I've never thought that, but I think you're right. Yeah. It's like a permission structure. Yeah. It's like, I I know mom's going to still love me even if I go here. And you know, I've had people, uh, a lot of my life has been sort of on various kinds of high wires, you know, like I dropped out of high school I moved out when I was 16. I was a dominatrix and a heroin. Like I just like, it's a very common, it's a very common trajectory. And I think, (laughs) A lot of it was actually facilitated that she might not be happy to hear this, but by having an incredibly supportive, like I never doubted, even if my parents disapproved of my decisions, which they often did, I never feared losing them. I knew that that was unbreakable, right? you know, and that I would be, even if they didn't support what I was doing or wouldn't bail me out, like they would never stop. I would never lose them. Like I would always be loved. And I think I was given that kind of love so early that it gave me a kind of resilience that allowed me to take these sometimes very stupid risks. But also, you know, behind many of my stupid risks was um, an allegiance to finding my own way and chasing the thing that I thought I was meant to do, even if it looked insane to other people, you know? Meaning writing? Meaning writing or a certain depth of understanding or a certain, um, finding people that I could identify with and connect to, um, trying to like find narratives or ways of being that defied sort of societal prescription or whatever, you know? And, and I actually think that people who didn't have that kind of support who have done the same thing that I've done, which is sort of like forge their own path. Like I have so much more admiration for them. I feel like, no, those are the people That's without <laughs> with the a strength net. of character. That's without a net. Yeah. Yeah. yeah who do it anyway, who well, have no like rubber coating of unconditional love. Well, I'm also curious with respect to, uh, writers who work in uh, a vein similar to yours where, uh, you're delving into yourself. It's autobiographical. Mm-hmm. It's deeply honest, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, when you have a conception of yourself as a writer and you know, that's the path that you're pursuing and you know that you're working in this vein, do you ever find yourself in life situations where you make choices based on its creative potential? Like, Hey, you know, if I become a dominatrix, this is going to give me some great material. Like just as an example, yeah, yeah, or, no. you know, like do you, do you find yourself there? You know what? I don't. And, um, 
like, you know, for more minor things, like a friend of mine suggested we go to the Westminster Dog Show. And I was like, I would love to go to the Westminster Dog Show. Maybe I could even write about it. Like sort of more mundane, like, um, or ordinary adventures. But when it comes to those like deep personal experiences, and I think this sounds unlikely, but I never do them for the material. You know, like I never thought I would write about being a dominatrix. I did not enter into this insane relationship or go find my birth father thinking I'm going to write a book about it. But what happens is when I'm in the midst of these harrowing, transformative, sometimes incomprehensible experiences, I do often have the thought, well, maybe I can write about it. (laughs) Figure it out that way. Yeah. And I think that is it helps me in a number of ways. It helps me survive it emotionally and psychologically because I can, I can sort of hold on to this token of believing that I'll be able to perform this kind of alchemy that will extract meaning or healing, or it might be useful someday. This painful experience, um, might be useful someday. And also it helps me create this sort of emotional distance from something. Like when I was meeting my birth father and his family in this book for most of it, I wasn't thinking I'm going to write a book about this, but I would go into the bathroom. I would like hang out with them, which was really weird and awkward and scary and interesting and boring all at the same time. And I would be like, okay, I need a break. And I go in the bathroom and I would transcribe what we were saying and take notes. Um, and I think on some level I'm a writer and I know that I have a bad memory and I need to take notes, but I think you I also, it on your phone or you have like a notebook, uh, either way. I think I did most of it in a notebook. Um, oh. but even I would go visit them and then I would leave and I would pull over in a rest stop and write notes. And I think it's a writer's instinct, but that's, um, really sort of combined with this instinct to give myself a job or take a step away from it and become sort of the observer. And that way I can walk through emotional experiences that would be confounding otherwise. You're so that you're so the, the daughter of a, of a shrink. <laughs> I mean, come on. I am. I am so the daughter of a shrink. I mean, you know, but I, that, that's kind of what it is. Is it not? I mean, it is sort of like a, it's like a self-analysis to, to work autobiographically, especially when it's more one for one. Like it's one thing to take your personal experiences and then build them into a fiction that is Mm -hmm. at a real remove Mm -hmm. and is really made up. Yeah. But it's another thing to either write memoir or to write like very close autobiographical fiction. Cause like you're right there, you're slowing down the experience, you're peeling back the layers, you're looking at it warts and all. Yeah. And that's basically what you do in therapy. It's true. And I'm, I'm constantly doing this sort of two step with myself and with, being present in my own experiences because, you know, I introduced the idea of taking notes or having some kind of objective role in the things that I'm, that are actually happening to me, Melissa, the person in real life, I'm taking notes and that's creating distance so that I can continue to move through them. And then I go and sit at a desk and I go into those notes and I go back and I sort of relive the experience at the remove at my desk, which is much safer and inhabit them emotionally to a much deeper degree than I did when I was living it. You know, like writing these books was more, a more holistic emotional experience in many ways than living the experiences I wrote about. Well, sure. Yeah. Cause like when you're in it, it's kind of a blur and then yeah. you go take these notes. I'm curious if you noticed any sort of uh, common thread from one book to the next or that, you know, across all of the writing that you've done in your life in terms of going through a big experience 
and then being able to write about it for other people to read. Mm -hmm. Like, can, can you do it immediately? Do you ever get really good material very close after one of these experiences or does it need to gestate? Like, do you need to like process it for a few months or a year or whatever? You know, I wrote most of this book while I was still in the relationship that I describe in it. So, you know, I mean, I do think that the, the real story in this book is not the relationship, but the life that I lived leading up to it. It was sort of the culminating, you know, it was like the, the climax of a certain aspect of my own life narrative. Um, but you know, if I wrote it today, if I wrote it five years from now, it'd be a different story. And I'm always sort of in this race against my memory too, because I don't have a good memory. Me I neither. forget things so quickly that I have to take notes and I have to write it pretty close to the experience. Um, or else it'll just be gone. Like, I don't remember things. I don't remember that much of my childhood. Um, and so I wrote a lot of it while I was in it and I was sort of drawing from the past for the nuance and the sort of dimensionality and insight really sort of came from the childhood material. Um, and I do think also I wanted to write the experience of this kind of affair, the way that it happened, which was so immediate and so intense and so consuming. And I don't think, I don't think a lot of people have relationships like that. It's, it's kind of rare, right? I mean, we've all had lust and we've all had, yeah. you know, like flings or whatever, but like, but the kind of love affair where you're like crashing into parked cars yeah. and the skin is peeling <laughs> off of your eyes because you're crying so much yeah. and your friends stop talking to you because they think you're going to have a stroke at the age of 34. That doesn't happen that often. That's deep. <laughs> That's deep. Not to the daughters of therapy. You know, like uh, on some level, like I'm always sort of tangling with this. Um, mortification about living the way that I do because I'm not like nothing that terrible happened to me. Like I just am extreme, you know, like I just have to go like all, I just have to get 86 over and over again out of everything I choose like, learn I the hard way. until it almost kills me. Like I have to hit the wall and hopefully not die. And then I can stop and like, but so far you have, you have a good self-preservation instinct. Like I feel like, um, there is some healthy balance being struck. There is. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not being totally genuine when I say that. Like, there's Melissa a part looks of very me. healthy for those of you listening. She looks, <laughs> you look well. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, a good friend of mine, I had dinner with her recently and we were talking about it and I was telling her like how happy I am and how well I'm doing. And she was like, God, you're like a cat with nine lives, except you have like infinite lives like you just like fall down the garbage chute and you pop up and she did this little like a cat <laughs> shaking itself off and like sauntering off and she was like it's amazing <laughs> you where know? do you think you get that from i don't know you know uh biology like god who, who the fuck knows but i mean you know? yeah, but that it's also like i think sometimes people who are given a, a lot of tough stuff to deal with as kids mm -hmm. are more resilient adults. It's true. It's true. And I think like I come from people who were also given a lot of tough stuff as kids and are incredibly resilient. Like, like I come from the people who were like the smart, weird outliers in their communities and their families who sort of like blasted their way through what was expected of them and like created the life that they wanted. And so I think I had that modeled for me. And then I also like, they were inordinately successful at correcting the errors of their own parents, you know? And so I was really, I was loved very well, even though there were issues, like I was loved really incredibly well, but I also have this weird cocktail of genetics where like, I'm very addictive. 
I'm very sort of like type two ADD, hyper focused, like extremely verbal, like everything in me sort of points in this like extreme <laughs> direction. And I've done a ton of work to sort of um, sublimate those instincts and make them work for me and avoid dying of them. I mean, this is the thing. And, you know, I, I never want to make light of people who struggle with addiction because it's a killer illness. I've mm -hmm. lost friends, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, I do sometimes in the weirdest way, envy people who have that energy and mm -hmm. have done the work, like you say, mm -hmm. to sublimate it and to harness it mm -hmm. because in the service of creative efforts, oh, it can yeah. be very powerful. It's amazing. Like when suddenly the uh, addictive impulse that you, you used to, um, you know, service with uh, alcohol and drugs mm -hmm. is suddenly writing. You can yeah. get a hell of a lot of work done as yeah. it turns out. Yeah. Like I remember saying after like, when I was first getting sober, like, God, if I could redirect, like the amount of energy and skill with which I like hustled to get heroin, if I could redirect that in a purposeful way, like imagine what I could do. And you know what? Like I have yeah. in many ways I have, you know, like I use too many Splenda packets and like smoke cigarette cigarettes sometimes. Um, By the way, Melissa showed up with her own sweetener. I made her a coffee and she pulled out, I think nice, it was, Brad. was it Splenda? Real nice. I don't want to talk about it. Stop interrupting me. Um, <laughs> but I do like have this, I found a way to really sort of jerry rig my own flaws and make them work for me, you know? And so like I do, like I write a ton. I can write anywhere because I just have this like sticky kind of focus where I can put it on something and it just won't let go. Like it's very tenacious. And so I can write, I love writing on airplanes, coffee shops, in my car, on my phone, you know? And I can just like do a lot of, I'm like a like a raccoon, you know what I mean? Just, you can sit there and, uh, you don't have to be precious about it. No. You don't need like the perfect time Absolutely. of day. Or... I'm like a bulldozer. So you know what this is making me realize? What? <laughs> I, I don't have addictive genetic makeup, but if you I had did too easy of a childhood, every day, you could, I and could. then you could recover from it and also be like a bulldozer. <laughs> My parents were too nurturing. <laughs> Just <laughs> fuck me up. I'm a disaster because of that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, um, you know, it is, it's kind of a dark gift because it can kill you. But in the end, like I honestly can say, I have like this incredibly beautiful life. Like I'm so grateful for it. And if I, and I wouldn't change anything because I don't know what would change if I changed anything and right. I would not want to relive any of it. But like, what would I be doing? You know, if I, like, what would I be writing books about? Would I be writing books? I don't know. And, and I feel like the two books are interlocking in some ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, it's not necessarily a direct continuation narrative, but you're yeah. telling, you're telling your story oh, and, sure. the, and these two narratives definitely fit together. Can you talk about, cause we've already talked about whip smart, you know, mm -hmm. in episode two of the podcast, mm -hmm. but um, talk about abandon me and like how mm -hmm. it, it, you know, the genesis of it and how you think it might continue some of the themes you explored in whip smart. If it does, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, after I published whip smart, I thought very clearly like, Oh, thank God I'll never have to write anything that personal again. And I was so incredibly wrong. Um, because that book was so much, it was, you know, I was naming a lot of things that I couldn't say out loud. And in that way it was really personal. And I was also naming things that people have bad ideas about like behaviors. It was sort of superficially very shocking and personal and subversive, but really it was a coming of age story 
you know. Um, and this book, I was so, um, I don't know, it defied all of my writing methods. My, I had to reinvent my writing process. Like How? So I'm a very pragmatic sort of circumscribed writer, or I was up until I wrote this book. I make outlines. I do notes. I'm very, um, I'm, I'm not, as you said, I'm not precious about my practice at all. And I usually have an idea of where it's going to go and I execute and there's always surprises in there. You know, like I'm always discovering something, but I know how I'm going to discover it. Right? right. And with these essays, I mean, maybe also because I was in the midst of this very like intense, like I was out of my mind, you know, and I started writing these essays and it was like, I could only see a few inches in front of my face. And a lot of it was just me sort of like whispering words to myself. And I entered into the essays through phonics, through image, through sound and like rhythm. And I did not know what the narrative was. And I think on some level I was unwilling to face what the narrative was because I was still inside of it. And I was really attached to a certain version, the sort of mythology I'd built around both like my daddy issues and my relationship where I couldn't really look at the whole picture. So I could just pluck out a little strand of it and really sort of chew on that very finely. And so I had no idea. I could not do outlines. And what I would do is sort of, um, work my way very slowly and very carefully through a draft. And then I would like develop this very eccentric method where I would cut, I'm very visual, you know, like very visual. I can't use Scrivener or any of those, you know, like I need to like lay it out the paper. Um, so wait, you, so you're writing by hand, you're printing it out. No, I was writing on the computer and then I would print it out and then I would cut up the drafts. I would cut it up by paragraph and I would like lay it all out on the this floor. This is very Howard Hughes. And no, it was. It was like a very a beautiful mind kind of thing. Yeah. And I would first put all of the paragraphs in piles, and I would pile them by theme, by narrative thread, by image. Interesting. Um, just so that I could physically see the proportions. And if I, you know, this wasn't totally off the map of things I, you know, like when I was in grad school, I used to go through books with different color highlighters and highlight like exposition and scenes just so I could get a visual sense of the proportion to, to sort of teach myself how to do that. So I would make these piles to sort of do detective work to figure out what I'd written. And then if the pile was like really big in the relationship pile, I'd be like, okay, clearly that's what this is about. Um, and then I would take those pieces and I would arrange them like a puzzle and just sort of look at the order of them and move them around. And, you know, there would always come this point where I would feel this like seething self-loathing and doubt where I'd be like, this is such bullshit. Like this is the most ridiculous self-indulgent form of procrastination. Like you're just concocting some like phony, like weirdo writer routine. That's I'm going sitting here nowhere. thinking it's brilliant, but you know, but you know what I would, every single time I would reach that point. And I did this with most of the essays in this book. And the first time I did it, I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> like I felt crazy. And, but there would come this moment that I think writers always have, especially when it's like in those middle to late drafts where you're just like, you're just like, I don't have the information to make this work. I have failed, right. you know? Right. And then somehow I would like arrange these little pieces and something would like click. And I would suddenly see 
a new facet of it and I would understand what needed to happen. And then I would take little blank scraps of paper and make notes about what was missing and put it in. And then I would tape it all up like this crazy Frankenstein draft on a piece of foam board and I would put it on the wall over my desk and then I would go into the computer and rearrange my draft according to the map that I created. And that's basically how I wrote them. It was like I had to sort of purge the raw material out of myself and then I had to like get to know it and figure out what it was and what the narrative was. And it was like the slowest, most deliberate writing I have ever done in my life. It took me so long to write these essays, like every single word, order, punctuation, paragraph break was like a decision that I made and unmade and made and unmade and made and unmade. It's, you know, it was very arduous. And I also think it became like, like the craft of it became like a place where I could go and not think about any, I mean, writing is always this, but particularly during this experience, it was such a relief to like be obsessed with something that wasn't the bullshit that was happening in my life. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Well, you know, it's funny too, because, uh, when it comes to writing really personal stuff, painful stuff, I've, I've encountered like, you know, several writers on this show and in my life who have worked this way. And it seems like there's two ways it can go. Um, one is that it's going to be this, this really painful experience that you had and it just comes out like hot and fast, mm -hmm. like this gush of emotion. Mm -hmm. I think that's the way we always dream. It's going to go mm -hmm. like, Oh God, you know, I've mm -hmm. been through this thing. It's been gnawing at me from the inside mm -hmm. out. I'm just going to sit down. I'm going to put the words in the right order mm -hmm. and get it out of me. Mm -hmm. But more often than not, cause I just went through the exact, like everything you were yeah. just saying was like music to my ears. Mm -hmm. Like <laughs> it was like one letter at a time. Yeah. It was the slowest, most arduous thing to kind of squeeze this out of myself. Yeah. I have all these disgusting analogies in my mind, like <laughs> being constipated or like, yes. or like having a urinary tract infection where you feel like Kidney you have stones. to pee yeah. incredibly bad. And then you sit down and it's like, yeah. Drip. Drip. Followed by searing pain. Yes, Drip. <laughs> that's right. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's, it, it's totally apt if you've been through it. It's yeah. like that, you know, cause it's this thing that's inside of you yeah. and, and it's the weirdest thing too. And I think this speaks just to the writing process generally, uh, is that there's this, this great desire that I think drives us that we, we just want to get this thing externalized. Mm -hmm. We want to get it from the inside mm -hmm. out, mm -hmm. but then once it's done and you talked about all the, like Howard Hughesy. Um, you know, foam board stuff that you did, you know, when you're going through it, you feel insane. Oh yeah. But tell me you don't, and maybe, maybe you're not there yet. Cause it, you know, the book is just rolling out, but then you get done and you get nostalgic for the creation oh, of the yeah. book. You're like, Oh, that oh. was so great. When I was in the foam board phase, yep. you know? I'm so there. I'm like <laughs> fantasizing about it. Like, like an ex that I'm still in love with, right. you know, like I really, and that started happening almost immediately, yeah. you know, cause you go through the whole process and then you know, this is like one of the reasons why I'm a writer. It's so fucking extreme. It's like all this thing or all this thing. And right now I'm like pushing all this energy outward. I'm talking about myself. I'm promoting. I'm like forced to think about my audience. Like, yeah, like a your platform. Like, yeah. Like all I <laughs> want to do in certain moments and I'm contradicting myself, but it's also true is like, I'm like, Oh, when can I just go back into the hole Yeah, and just like be obsessed and crazy and like, not take a shower for three days and like hang out with my friend and not even remember how to speak to people. You right. know, like I totally, 
oh, like right now I have such a feeling of like wanting that. Like just grass talking is always greener. about it, you know? And then you're in it and it's like five years in and you're like, when is someone going to clap for me again? <laughs> like, <laughs> when can I feel like... Um, my life has like direction or yeah, some kind of yeah, purpose. Yeah, exactly. Or... But, but I actually believe in like, maybe I'm just totally unqualified to say this because I'm in this part of it, but I really do believe that that part of it, that being in the work of it and doing the Howard Hughesian stuff, like that's the real thing. Yeah. That's the real, like, like this doesn't exist or mean anything without that. Right. And that's where, you know, and like, it, it, you know, it's sort of paradoxical because in order to realize that or appreciate it, you have to get to this part, but this part is not the meat. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, this is just the part that makes me realize that that's when I was figuring it all out. And that's where the, that's where the risk was taken. And that's where the reward was, was gained. You know, you just don't get to like spend the check of it until you're over here. Like, and you got it, but you got to, you got to enjoy, it seems like you're enjoying this part of it. We, I am, you know, am. and you should, you should after all, I mean, yeah. how many years in the hole working on this book It was a lot. and doing all this, uh, you know, digging, it's not easy stuff. And then yeah. you make a beautiful book and you get to go on the road for a couple of weeks and, and people clap, like enjoy it. Yeah. LA feels like the best place for that too. I'm like, it's sunny. Like <laughs> there's palm trees, everybody's smiling and nice yeah. and there's like produce that's worth eating <laughs> and like this is like an outward place new york is a good place to like cry about how your process is failing and la is a good place to like be clapped for and pretend that your process is awesome yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's so good oh my god uh so let's talk about what you i mean this is i don't want to sound hokey about it i'm but... okay with hokey I, i'll i'll choose hokey in earnest over ironic every day. Well, I mean, so it's, it's kind of, it. it's kind of a hackneyed thing to say, but it's like you write a book like this and people I'm sure will throw around the word like catharsis. Mm -hmm. What did you learn? But mm -hmm. you do learn. I mean, like, Oh yeah. What did you learn from abandoning me? Like, what did you learn about yourself? Mm -hmm. Like what, what's the takeaway? What's the gain or what's like the difficult truth that you had to confront about yourself? Mm -hmm. If there is one primary, honestly, I think like I keep learning the same shit over and over again. And it's not, a waste of time like it's always new it's always in a new little hamlet of living you know but like there's no escape there's no escape there's no shortcut like you cannot permanently repress your feelings you cannot avoid heartbreak um you cannot erase aspects of your personality can you can you, scare you can you make enormous spiritual leaps using psychedelic drugs <laughs> No. Damn. Only for the duration of that trip. Right. That's what I believe. I mean, I feel like that's, I covered that one in the first book where I was like, this is a shortcut to enlightenment. Like drugs are a shortcut to enlightenment, but you don't, you get a taste of it. You get a preview, yeah. but it's not enlightenment. And you it's can't fleeting. Cheat. And you can't remember it in the morning. You're like, yeah, what the fuck no, it was doesn't that? mean anything. You can remember that you thought you had an enlightenment, but you don't have it anymore. Yeah. You know, just like, you know, I think in this book, it's very much about me sort of reckoning with my own attempts to control who I was or who I wasn't or how I loved, you know, it was about sort of having a series of love relationships in which I didn't risk the things that I most feared. And then, which is like abandonment. Yeah. I mean, there's like the where I didn't feel vulnerable. I wasn't afraid, you know, like, and I had deep real relationships before this one. And, but I always felt kind of safe. I always sort of knew that if someone was going to leave, it would be me. 
hopefully all my exes aren't listening to this, but, um, and it always was me. And, and so I think, but that imposed a lower ceiling on what was possible, you know, like you can only sort of grow or discover things to the degree that you're willing to risk your own uncertainty or, you know, um, and it's a lot to put out there. I mean, like we just to go yeah. back to what we were talking about, like has the publication of this book or publication of earlier work of yours ever had, um, like a, a complicating effect on relationships you've had, be they intimate or friendships. I mean, you, you talked about your mom being pretty cool. No, never, never. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it has. Um, you know, like writing about this stuff, you can't write about your own most transformative experiences and not implicate other people in a profound way, because that is where our intense life experiences come from. Like, you know, it's like, all right. So maybe like Carl Jung, can exile himself for seven years and like face all of his archetypes and, you know, have his numinous beginning or whatever. But like most of us aren't going to do that. Most of us are going to find transformation and trauma through relationships with other people. Well, and, yeah, you can't, not everybody has the financial wherewithal to like go build their stone tower. To go out into the desert. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, what's happened, like what writing does for me inside of myself and my own psyche, it has also performed in my relationships with other people, which is that, you know, in my work, I force myself to face the things that I could not face when I was living them. And I force myself to sort of destroy my more comfortable narrative around it so that I can look at sort of a scarier truth and therefore be more honest with myself, make more room, um, give myself more freedom, you know? So I'm not living within these structural narratives that make me feel safe and that I think I'm dependent on. And then when I f do that, then this thing exists that implicates other people. And sometimes I have to annihilate their narratives or our family's narratives. And so I have to give it to them. And then that forces us to do that within our relationship. Right. You know, so we <laughs> then have to talk about what actually happened or I have to be like, Hey, I came to this like deeper honesty about our family and I guess now I have to say it. So do you, you, do you, do you preview this stuff for people who will be implicated? Like I do. And I, and I've had sort of a long trajectory with that, you know, like with the first book, one, the first book didn't implicate other people nearly so much as this book, you know, my addiction and my experience as a dominatrix was, was mostly my experience and other people had feelings about it, but I didn't feel an obligation to like get their feedback. I sent it to them before it was published because that felt respectful, but I wasn't, I didn't ask for notes, right? you know, nor do I think I could have negotiated that interaction in a, um, responsible or boundaried way. But seven years later with this book that does implicate my family and does write about events that were very large in other people's lives, maybe larger in their life than in mine. Um, I did, I felt a different kind of um, obligation to them and to their, so I gave it to every member of my family and I basically said, here's this, <laughs> I'm interested in what you think. And I'm interested in mitigating to whatever degree I can your discomfort with it. I can't make promises, but I'll do my best. That's nice of you. Um, how'd yeah. it work? How'd it go? You know, I proceeded to have three of the most challenging adult intimate, profound interactions of my life. Wow. It was really, really intense. And, and that speaks sort of to, with, with whom do you mind saying with my mother, my father and my brother, like birth father, no, oh, adoptive father. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, and you know, so they all had notes, they all had thoughts. Um, I made a lot of changes, but like those, it was pretty easy to, at least with my mom and dad, it was, it wasn't the edits that were hard. It was the conversation. It was, it was that acknowledgement of what had happened and what made it feel so adult. Like why I use that term is because I also wrote about, I wrote about my parents' marriage. I wrote about their parenting of me during my childhood, but I also wrote about their childhoods and sort of how the traumas and conditions of their childhoods became a legacy that they handed down to me, Mm. either by replicating it or by reversing it, you know? And so in this conversation, I was, you know, I didn't have to do this, but I was able to sort of interact with them as their daughter, as their child, as um, another adult human with, who had a full knowledge of their own story and also as a writer. And so I had to sort of keep all of those roles alive to really do it right. And the stakes were high because I cared about them. I cared about my work and respecting it. And I cared about preserving our relationship, you know? So it felt like a, in many ways, like a pretty narrow walkway where I couldn't just be like, I couldn't be reactive. I couldn't detach, I could like, there was just no, I had to really be my best self in those conversations and like be there for them, have boundaries, show up for my work, say no when I needed to, you know, it's like, it just took all of the tools I've ever learned, like in 12 step programs or therapy or like through my experience, I just like had to call upon everything I had to really show up for that experience. And I did. And it was amazing, Wow, you know, And, and also really complicated and difficult, but, um, I would never have chosen to have those conversations. We would never have had those conversations otherwise. And when I sat down to write the book, I think somehow I managed to just trick myself or I decide to let myself believe each time. Like nobody's I'm ever going to read nobody's this. Nobody's ever going to read this. I'm just going to mess around. Right. I'm going to just write something whimsical. You, you, you got know? to, you got to, you know? And I think too, um, that what one of like, one of the things that strikes me, about your book and about, um, relationship with your, your father, your, uh, like the sea captain and mm-hmm. your biological father. It's just this idea that we, we can never get away from ourselves. We mm-hmm. can't detach from our parents. We can't, mm-hmm. that there's no way they're mm-hmm. always there. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. we're, we're inextricably bound. And so, you know, if, if somebody has like, no matter how good or bad your parents are, like it's in your DNA. You talk about mm-hmm. stuff that your parents mm-hmm. went through as children that mm-hmm. they then replicated mm-hmm. or reversed. Mm-hmm. And it just goes on down through the generations. Like, yeah. And you're bound to that too. Like it's just, it's really, it really runs deep. And I don't think, I mean, I guess I'm, what I'm trying to say is it's, it's very much the same thing as, um, you can't repress your emotions and mm-hmm. make them go away. You can't mm-hmm. repress your family yeah. and make them go away or, or erase their effect on you. You mm-hmm. have to actually reconcile with it. I think if there's like an ultimate message or argument or moral of this book, it is that, and that you, there's no escape. And that doesn't mean that you're doomed. It just means that like you can't hide from it. You have to go through it. And and that doesn't mean you have to be in contact with your family. You know what I mean? But right. you cannot erase any of it. And and not just with your family, but also with, I mean, there's a historical legacy. And I go into that in the book too, that it gets like, you can't escape the history of this country. 
you can't live here and escape that. You can't, you can't even escape the history of the words you use, like the etymology. You can be ignorant to it. You can choose not to look at it. You can pretend it's not there. You can make up another story, but it doesn't change the way that we're encoded with all of it. Yeah. You know, that we are, we were built by the history of this country and the history of our families and the history of the things that have happened to us and the language that we speak. Like it's all there. And it's also, you know, it's also interesting to think of in a very, uh, serious way, what your parents were like as kids, mm -hmm. you know, like when all of mm -hmm. a sudden you see your folks as children, mm -hmm. like whatever they did or didn't do mm -hmm. when you see, like all of a sudden it's like, you're sitting there deeply thinking about your father as a little boy. Mm-hmm. That sort of softens things. Exactly. I think I had this weird, almost compulsive habit when I was young of imagining people as like infants or toddlers kind of, which is like a great sort of empathic exercise, but also it was like kind of a lot for a young person. It was just like, I couldn't <laughs> get over the fact that everyone had been a baby, Yeah, you know? And it was almost like their softness and like vulnerability was like too much. I think that's part of why I had to do heroin and smoke crack. Cause I feel like <laughs> couldn't deal with like the vulnerability of other people and how evident it was and is, you know, but like, that's a huge part of like what I did in this book and what I sort of seek to do in a more comprehensive way in life is like, you can't hate anyone. If you look at their whole story, you can hate the things they did. You can hold them accountable, but you can't reduce them. Yeah. You know, like they always, the math always works out in my experience. It, you know? It's interesting you say this and I don't, you know, it's, it's going to be, uh, a bumpy segue, but I really do want to talk to you about this. Cause I feel like you might have unique insight. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But you talk about not being able to hate anyone once you've really seen into the depths of them, their childhood, all the pain that they carry, mm -hmm. whether they know it or not. Mm -hmm. um, we obviously live in crazy times. Mm -hmm. uh, Donald Trump <laughs> is uh, a tough pill to swallow. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've noticed like a heightened agitation in myself. Mm -hmm. I've definitely seen it on social media. I've seen, mm -hmm. I've felt it with friends. Like, everybody's sort of ratcheted up mm -hmm. and it's very easy to get super angry at him. Yep. Like it's not unjustified in a lot yep. of senses, but, um, I, I look at him and he's such a weird puzzle. Cause it's like, what, ha I, I want to know what happened to him. Why is he this way? <laughs> like, you know, and like he also, so, he also sort of fits, I don't mean to stereotype too much, but he does fit the profile of the kind of guy I'm sure you saw a lot of in your work as a Dom. Yeah. You know, what's funny. Somebody actually found, Someone who's interviewing me like on this book tour found an old interview I did with New York Magazine on my fir when my first book came out and they asked me, what do you think of Donald Trump? Oh. And I said, I didn't even remember this. And, and I said, he reminds me exactly of my clients when I was a dominatrix because he does. Yeah. And yeah. what, and then what is the psychological profile there? Like, is there any insight? You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, yeah, yeah. I think oh, I have a few thoughts. One is that I do think there's sort of something that I recognize and it has to do with a person who is divorced from large swaths of their humanity, you know, who has exiled big parts of themselves, you know? And I think if you're paying someone to fulfill a need that you have, that's very strong, like maybe not to everyone, but to most people who do that, there's just like this compartmentalization you know, or, uh, an inability to integrate large aspects of who you are into 
the life that you've created, which might mean that the life you've created is inauthentic, is not, is not made out of any kind of self-knowledge or earnest desire to like inhabit the world in the most useful, true way you can, you know? I mean, and the other thought that I have is, I don't know, I think sometimes the instinct is to look at him and to be like, we need to figure that out. And that's what will make us feel better. And it's like, that'll never happen. Like, I'm not going to get to go and interview his family members and like make eye contact with him and find some sort of like figure out where his humanity, like that's not going to happen. You know what I mean? And so I think actually the, the action that's going to treat that for me has to do with what I'm already doing, has to do with performing that on myself and on the people in my life and in my own work. You know, like I keep being asked like in these new dystopian times, do you think that memoir or personal narrative is obsolete? Is it unimportant? Do you feel like you need to be writing more op-eds or, you know, yeah. be a political journalist or whatever? And, and I think, no, the opposite, you know, that like, it's so like what we see in him, what his policies are enacting, what our sort of knee jerk reaction is to our fear and frustration and anger at him. All the antidote to all of that is a deeper empathy, a deeper connection with our own humanity and the narratives of other people and sort of, um, bringing that to each other. I feel like there are going to be some really, like I, this is a book that I, I like imagine myself writing, which, mm -hmm. which I haven't done is like a Trump diary, just like a <laughs> daily, like some sort of like, you know, mm -hmm. uh, like a Nias Nin, like, but mm -hmm. like a daily diary like experience of this. Cause it is so insane and yeah. constantly changing yeah. and like herky jerky and like, mm -hmm. ah, you know, like I, I feel like there's going to be someone who is able to distill it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I like, think there's going to be more than one. I mean, I think this is going to be an incredibly fertile time for art and for intersections of art and politics. Um, cause we are going to have to find new ways to name it. Cause it's a new thing or it's a new level of an old shitty thing. You know, like I think in many ways, the job of artists is to, name the common experience in a way that cuts so, through. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and this is a, this is a new experience. This is a, a pointed experience. This is a confounding and painful experience. And we're going to find ways to name it. And, and on some level, at least I'm excited about that. You know, a lot of good art came out of the Bush years. Yeah. You know, a lot of good, like the in 80s, all the mediums. 80s were good too, right? Yeah. Like the music, <laughs> visual art, like writing, like it does, you know, we, we do have to answer it. You know, we are called upon to answer it. We, we need to, and I think we will, but like, I don't, I can't speak to like his psychological profile. Are really. you capable of thinking of him in, in terms of compassion? Can you feel any compassion for him? <laughs> like just the tiniest bit, but it's just like this little piece of sea glass that gets sucked in by the ocean of my loathing <laughs> and disgust. Yeah. And he, he doesn't make it easy. Does he? No, he really doesn't. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing too, is that like, at what point is a person so far gone that they're irretrievable? Are they irretrievable? It's like the whole, you know, to, to use like a common, 
uh, metaphor. It's like the star Wars thing, you know, like yeah. I can sense some good in you father, you know, like, yeah. he can be turned yeah. back from the dark side. Yeah. Like, or are some people like the emperor? I don't think you could turn the emperor. The emperor was just gone. Yeah, no, that was it. It was like, yeah, like he was almost just like a performance of a, of a soul, you know, it was like, so gone it was like how stars like what we see as stars are already dead the it's light just is the already... <laughs> light filtering many like millions of light years down to us like uh, like maybe donald trump is just like a speck is a dark star of human light yeah like making its way to us and his soul is already exploded in a supernova and is some little <laughs> compact white dwarf of soul material in another galaxy well uh, I always love talking to you. It's been too long since the first I know, conversation. I know. I'm going to have to write books faster yeah, so that I can talk to you it. more. Get the, get some more phone boards going. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I congratulate you um, on your success. I'm very happy to see you. And I wish you well on whatever comes next. Thank you so much, Brad. Okay, guys. There you go. Melissa Phoebos. Delightful conversation. Her new book is called Abandon Me. Multiple memoirs all in one book. What do you think of that? Melissa Phoebos can be found on the internet at melissaphoebos.com. She's on Facebook. You can follow her on Twitter at Melissa Phoebos. One more time, the book is called Abandon Me, available from Bloomsbury. If you enjoy this podcast, if it's uh, something you listen to on a weekly basis or semi-weekly basis, on a regular basis, let's just put it that way. If you listen on a regular basis and you would like to support the show, you can do that over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can also uh, support the show via PayPal. There's a link in the sidebar over at other PPL.com. I haven't played this song in a while. I feel like this is something that might play at a roller rink. Imagine me roller skating to this song. doing that what is it called like the russian hat dance on roller skates so always fun to talk with melissa as i recall i, I was uh, energized by the conversation just a very open person very self-aware makes my job easy if you would like to write to me, the, the uh, mailing address or email address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. I don't know about drinking and writing. It seems like it's a slippery slope. It makes me too tired. But maybe that's the good thing. Maybe it does help you loosen up a little bit. You get there quicker, you know? I don't know. Share share your thoughts with me. If, if you guys have uh, routines involving chemical substances, I'd be curious to know. So I tweeted about this possible road trip where I get in a car, drive cross-country for a week, stopping along the way at writers' houses, interviewing them. There was a pretty enthusiastic response. I'd have to sell that one to my wife. You don't mind, do you, honey? Just 
take the kids for a week while I go on a road trip. It's for the podcast. It's for the pod. Don't ever refer to your podcast as the pod. (laughs) 